David's Any Requests podcast. This is, of course, our weekly Patreon-requested podcast where you, the listener, can donate £5 a month through our Patreon channels and get us through a podcast on absolutely anything you want. David is, of course, entirely correct. Um, and indeed, welcome back. Um, sorry we weren't with you last week, but um, we've just got too much to do now that we're trying to do our careers and life and stuff. No, I'm not sorry. You're not sorry. No, we shouldn't be sorry, no. really. Um, but anyway, thank you for coming back and, and listening to this week's podcast, which is another wonderful musical podcast. It is indeed. This week we are looking at our top ten sax solos. This is a great one. It's this a is a really one. cool yeah, request. Uh, comes once again uh, from my dear sister, Lara, who has yeah uh, asked us to go back through the annals of music history and find what we think are the best, uh, yeah... That's the professional term for sax solos. Um, why? I didn't know Lara was a big fan of saxophones. <laughs> I think Lara is a big fan of music from the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, obviously, she's um, uh, a bit of an age gap between us, 18-year age gap, so she kind of grew up in that time period. And a yeah. lot of my love of 80s music uh, comes from uh, my sister playing those kind of songs when I was much younger. And... Uh, uh, in fact, I think a couple probably on my list are going to be big favourites of hers. But yeah, and I think, I mean, it's interesting that you you said, as, as we'll come on to actually, predominantly you've been focused in the 70s. Mm. And I think uh, I've got a bit of a mixed couple of 70s, couple of 80s. But I think, especially if I look at kind of the honourable mentions as well, it does seem like there was a big kind of yeah. boon in that kind of maybe, yeah, 75 to kind of 85 period, I guess, where so many songs suddenly it was like a rec- prerequisite. You had to have a sax solo in it. <laughs> yeah, and it then, was. yeah, you kind of get into the 90s and and it's quite difficult to to find songs with pop songs, you know, pop music songs with, with saxophone yeah. uh, numbers in, certainly mainstream music. Um, I don't, I'm not quite sure why it kind of fell out of popularity. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people kind of found it a bit cheesy and there are mm. some artists that might be considered responsible for that that we'll mention uh, as we go through. Kenneth? Um, yes, absolutely. Kenneth Jizzle. Uh, Key Jizz, as they called it. They didn't, that's not very nice, is it, actually? Because that means something else. Yeah. Um, sorry, Kenny, if you're listening to this. Yeah, I've... Mm, yeah. Probably. Um, yeah, uh, well, uh, that, 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 is, that is an interesting kind of thing i know that kind of there was a bit of a boom but it's also worth mentioning as you've kind of nodded to that we focused on uh pop and rock songs kind of mainstream chart uh songs uh that feature sax solos because i mean originally when i got this i was like oh easy i'm just gonna do every track uh off john coltrane's blue you know uh, but but if you do that then you kind of are really limited um uh, in what you can kind of talk about. And I think it's much more interesting if we look at, as kind of Lara's request suggested, the pop and rock kind of genre. Yeah, because I, I mean, even kind of leading out of jazz and things like, I, you know, I, I'd say probably in my in my honourable mentions would be uh, uh, One Step Beyond. Mm. But then even kind of looking at how much brass 
is already so instrumental to ska music, yeah. you kind of go, well, it feel that doesn't feel like a sax, so that feels like part of that genre and style of music. So I guess, yeah, we've we've chosen songs that perhaps wouldn't necessarily think that there would be a saxophone solo in, but it's been brought in to, I guess, kind of enhance the song and, and have a specific kind of uh, a, a feel to it and change that song in a certain way. Absolutely. Um, you've also uh, um, kind of led me on to my first quiz question. Mm. Um, because you mentioned that, that brass is obviously integral, integral to uh, ska and jazz and, and a lot yeah. of funk and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but would you class the saxophone as a brass instrument? Ah, is it a woodwind? Technically, I thought it, it is a woodwind. Yeah. But in order to be a saxophone, it has to be made out of brass. Yeah, right. So, yeah, yeah. And it's always included in brass sections in contemporary yeah. and funk and, and ska and all of that kind of stuff. Is uh, that because you play it with a reed? It's because you play it with a reed. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely right. It was invented in 1846 by Adolf Sax. Jonathan Saxophone. <laughs> well, close. <laughs> uh, Adolf or Adolfa uh, Sax, Belgian um, inventor. Um, and musician. What, what year, sorry? 1846. 1846. It's a relatively young instrument. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. pretty, yeah, you know. Yeah, comparatively. Yeah. Um, and he made it in a range of different keys, mainly a lot of C, concert C um, uh, keys and, and F, um, which became really popular because, um, as I'm kind of discovering at the moment, working on mm. a, uh, a show uh, that kind of starts in 1840s and leads up to 1872, 1873, um, the kind of main pop music of that time was kind of easy to play European classical. Yeah. And as a result, you didn't have kind of, not everyone had a gramophone uh Actually, Vitrolas would have been, would have been mm-hmm. what some people had. You had pianolas, but really, you had to have someone in your family who played piano yeah. to a reasonable standard. Yeah, just to be able to listen to music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you wanted to play along with someone and what we call kind of parlor music mm-hmm. now, you know, gathering around the piano and having a little sing song, um, you would have had to have an instrument that would play along with the piano without needing too much technical ability. So C and F were really popular. However, we moved through that, all the instruments that are experimenting with Adolf Sax's saxophone, um, found that actually they much preferred it in B flat um, or E flat. Um, so uh, some of the songs we're going to be talking about, um, that that does make a big difference in terms of the tone that mm. you're hearing. Um, and also one of the things reasons it makes it kind of slightly difficult to play because if you're playing along with uh, with a, a piano a concert C or a flute in concert C um, or a violin in concert A, mm-hmm. you're having to do quite a lot of maths in order to come up with some of the stuff, especially if you're a session muso working in contemporary music, you yeah. might not necessarily have it all scored out for you. Right. Um, which is just something I wanted to kind of plant the seed for mm, there. Interesting. Um, and a little bit of history. Yeah. Would you say he's the most famous Adolf? Um, I think he probably is yeah yeah, yeah. um so <laughs> it's spelled differently uh, yeah. it's, it's adolf p-h-e at okay. the end so it could be adolfa adolfe um maybe but he doesn't sound very he belgian Ita- so. he Italian? No, no, he belgian, wasn't. you said yeah oh, okay, there you go um have you ever played the saxophone um i've blown through a saxophone have a couple you? of times yeah and i got a pocket sax um, a little while ago. All right, it's family show. <laughs> Which is made out of... Is it? Is no. it a family show? I hope not. <laughs> um, it, which, which is kind of made out of plastic, a little bit like a, 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 a pea bone, like the, the plastic trombones. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we were talking about some yeah, reason. Yeah, we were talking about bones, weren't we? Um, <laughs> I think it was Xavier Woods. Yeah. He plays one in, uh, in wrestling. In, in I tell you exactly what it was. We were doing... Calamari. Oh, a quiz! Yes, it was the quiz answer. A pub quiz. Uh, 
instead of doing this podcast uh mm. whenever that was when we took a break um and uh we we won happily mm-hmm. um but there was a question about is is a pea bone um something you play something you eat something you oh, there's like four options yeah. and you instantly knew because you knew it was a miniature I did. Miniature what? It's trombone? not a miniature, it's just plastic trombones. Plastic so trombone. It's slightly easier to play and doesn't cost so much. So a lot of kids, it was designed for kind of getting kids into uh, playing the trombone. So a, um, so a pocket sax is like a plastic saxophone? Yeah. So it's still a reed instrument. The fingering's slightly different as well. Yeah. And also something I'm going to come back to is that um, the, the key thing about a saxophone is that it rather than it, it's a keyed instrument, like a flute or a mm-hmm. clarinet. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can play keyed key instruments like flutes or clarinets, um, uh, or even starting off on something like a recorder, mm-hmm. it will give you a, a kind of basic foundation for what a saxophone is, except it's much more complicated um, and you need kind of extra keys. Now, depending on what version or what design of saxophone you're playing, it can completely alter uh, the way you play it, even if it's in the same mm-hmm. key, I mean, same design. It's interesting because I think a lot of people um, with kind of less musical knowledge would probably say that Hourly, the sound of a saxophone is more similar to the sound of a trumpet than it yeah. would be to the sound of a flute. And yet, flautists would be easy, probably find it a lot easier to pick up a saxophone than a trumpet player would. Yeah, I think which is really interesting. That is interesting. I, I remember um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Julian Lippmann, who we both mm-hmm. know actually. Um, he's a multi instrumentalist and played with a lot of bands. Some, one of the bands we're going to mention today, actually. And um, he uh, had never seen an oboe before. Well, he, he'd seen mm-hmm. one, obviously, but he'd never played one. And he was trying to teach someone a part that he'd written for the oboe. And he just picked it up and started playing it. And there were a couple of squeaks, and then within a minute, he knew how to play it. I said, how is that? And he said, well, I'm transferring it from the fact that I've played a sax and a clarinet before. Right. And I'm just kind of transferring that knowledge and working out what the slight uh, quirks and differences are. Mm-hmm. Now, not everyone can do that. Yeah. But um, but yeah, some people just have that amazing ability. I don't really, because mm-hmm. I don't play any woodwinds, but that's why right. I got the pocket sax. Yeah. Um, but interesting working with a clarinetist at the moment. It's a, a similar kind of game in terms of arrangements. So, yeah. But um, a brilliant invention, yeah. wonderful bit of um, ingenuity and in, uh, design and completely... Uh, hugely influential, um, uh, yeah. not just for classical music and, and uh, jazz, um, but as we're going to talk about in a pop and rock world. Well, absolutely. It's a, it's and and perhaps something that I stumbled upon when I was doing the research for this was uh, I can't remember who said it, but it was an interesting quote that said that that perhaps the saxophone is the most genre crossing instrument of all time. Um, yeah, which is really interesting to think about, um, and, and not just genre crossing, as in like, oh well, you know, you can put a violin in a folk band, or yeah. you can put a. You, 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 it 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 seems to be iconic, an iconic part of so many different genres. Yeah, um, yeah. if you were talking about film noir, you'd go, well, I've got a walking bass line and a saxophone, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or if you're talking about um, uh, an eighties um, uh, action movie, where well, you've yeah. got to have a saxophone, yeah. Um, yeah. And it seems to be so kind of encapsulating of different genres yeah. and worlds. Um, pornography, of course, very famous. Uh, very, very much. Or the erotic thriller in the early 90s was always yeah. underscored by uh, these ridiculous sax solos and stuff. And so. as Marilyn Monroe taught us in uh, Some Like It Hot, mm. it is one of the sexiest instruments, right? Yeah. Um, I know a lot of sax players who genuinely get a lot of interest um, from uh, people who fancy them oh, yeah. um, because of the saxophone. 
Yeah. Well, I imagine you would get interest from people that fancy you. Because if they already fancy you, then they're going to be interested. People who fancy them because of the saxophone. Oh, I see. So, right. Yeah. So actually, <laughs> it's not that they fancy them. It's not that they fancy them because of the saxophone. It's not because they fancy them that they talk to them. They, talk, they, they fancy them from afar. The reason they actually make a move yeah. is because of the saxophone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone knows that, yeah, Dave. Yeah, Come on. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah. nuanced sentence. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> oh, should, we, should, we, should we get started? Yeah, what I loved about that was I <laughs> the reason you said that I could tell was because you were trying really hard to make sure you weren't making any kind of assumptions or like or maybe gendering anything. Yeah. Anything. You were going, how can I make, say that most generally I can? <laughs> yeah, inclusive. But then what happened was the sentence meant, meant nothing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But it was, you know, an attempt. It was and and more power to you for attempting. <laughs> Thank you. We, we like allyship at Podcast uh, Macabre. We certainly do. Um now I uh, I'm going to start. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> that was a great intro. <laughs> oh, um, everyone's enjoying the weather, I hope. It's very lovely at the moment. Oh, it's hot, isn't it? It's, it's too hot. hot. It's too hot. Too hot to be podcasting. So, uh, going to go five to one. Yeah, like five a, to one, top fives. Top of the pops countdown. Mm-hmm. Um, my number five, in at number five, this week, is the 1982 Hall & Oates classic Maneater. Brilliant. Uh, so this is unbel... Right. Okay. Ask you a little question here. Okay. So, Maneater, mm-hmm. uh, released in 1982. Okay. Now, what album do you think this is from in terms of, like, the the, the number of albums? Which which album do you think this is from? How many albums have they right. released? Well, I'm going to assume that it's fairly early because I don't, they can't have released that many. The, but now you've asked me. Now I'm thinking, okay, so I'm going to play it safe and err on the side that they made loads of albums that I don't really know about in the 70s. So I'm going to say number three. Number three. I'd probably think the same thing. It's from their 11th studio album. What? How is that possible? 82? In 1982. Wow. It, yeah, they were around a lot longer than I realised. No um, idea. But but yeah, but this was their kind of first huge hit. It was number one on the Billboard chart in America for four weeks. Uh, it spent 23 weeks in total in the top 10, um, which, yeah, kind of blew away anything they'd done uh, prior yeah. to that. And I think to this day, it is still their most successful song, um, more than Out of Touch or You Make My Dreams or anything like that. Um, interestingly... Uh, Daryl Hall was saying in an interview that a lot of people assume it's about a sort of man-eating woman. woman. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's not. It's about it's it's an anti-capitalist song about New York in the 1980s. Oh my goodness! But they said that um, they they realised that if they kind of personified it, it would be uh. a lot more accessible to people. So Which is true. It's yeah, but, but it's it, the the sort of character in the song is actually a physical embodiment of New York in the eighties and and people being kind of uh, corrupted and avaricious and make yeah. you sweat hard, make you work hard, make you sweat, make you want more, right? Yeah. Uh, that would be Nelly Furtado's Manita. Yeah, which sampled some of that, didn't it? I don't believe so. No. Uh, watch out, boys! She'll chew you up. Oh, here yeah. she comes. Oh, She's I'm just thinking. Either. I'm just conflating the two in my head. Yeah, no, someone should make songs. a mashup of that. Someone should make a mashup of that. Um, so uh, yeah, it was uh, featuring on the song is a great sax solo by um, a guy called Charles Dechant. Or Dechant. Yeah. Um He uh, 
was ostensibly Hall & Oates' saxophone player, but also played uh, saxophone for Mick Jagger, The Temptations, Tina Turner, Billy Joel, Bonnie Raitt, and a whole host of other people. One of these dudes. One of those dudes, yeah, session kind of dude, but spent most of his career um, with Hall and & Oates. Um, and he uh, is currently uh, been, during the pandemic, teaching uh, saxophone online. Wow! <laughs> this is quite amazing, yeah. That's a lovely thing to yeah. do. But um, I, I love this solo uh, because I think it's actually the most kind of unusual sax solo of the five I've chosen. In fact, I don't even know if technically you could call it a sax solo because what you actually hear are two separate sax lines. They're both played by uh... the chant and doubled, but it makes it sound almost like a sax duet. But it's a it's really odd if you if you listen to it. We'll play you a snippet in a minute. Um, but you can kind of hear that one saxophone is sort. It's almost like a call and response of the same sax line, but it's like a weird time signature out. So it's oh. it's 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 quite odd and some almost discordant in some ways. Um, and and so yeah, which makes it very memorable. Um, and yet kind of comes in around about two thirds of the way into the song, which is like. 99% of sax solos, as I've learned, come in about two thirds of the way into a song. Um, and uh, it was, um, uh, yeah, like I said, kind of really uh, acclaimed as a song, uh, very successful. And then um, about two months ago, uh, John Oates teamed up with uh, a person called Sax Squatch, who is a <laughs> yep, who is apparently a bit right. of a YouTube guy, um, uh-huh. and they created. Um, a, an EDM version of Maneater, um, and uh, okay. put it out online, and apparently it's incredible. Um, right. But but uh, and actually, th- this guy is a kind of EDM saxophonist, so they've boosted uh. the sax even more. Apparently, in this new version that clearly Daryl Hall didn't want to be part of, because <laughs> um, <laughs> they off. definitely still tour together. So Do I they? don't know okay. why why John Oates just decided to go and do it on his own, and sing all of Daryl Hall's parts. Maybe well, John Oates went. Uh, hey, I'm working with this guy called Saxquatch. Do you want to get involved? It's yeah. an EDM version of one of our biggest hits. Yeah. And uh, Daryl Hall went, no. Well, that I sounds mean, ridiculous. Especially as the See art- you later. The Come art- back when you've not lost your mind. The article I found about it referred to Saxquatch as whom John Oates met over the internet. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay what, is, what is this? He knew it. Jo- yeah. John Oates trolling yeah. the internet, finding little gems. That's cool. I do yeah. think that's a, a good thing. I haven't got any uh, kind of EDM uh, dance sax uh, things on my list, um, but there's some kind of a nods to it on my honourable mentions, and I, I think that is a, an interesting thing, like the yeah. way in which brass and and sax, particularly as a woodwind yeah. instrument, uh, has has you know gone into that genre as well. Absolutely. Apparently, it was originally written to be um, a, a reggae song, and then it got kind of yeah ah. worked and reworked and the two of them sort of yeah uh, it, it evolved into um this sort of yeah 80s sort of synth pop poppy kind of number that it is uh now um and also interestingly there used to be apparently a line that daryl hall says he now can't remember but it used to be oh here she comes watch your boy she'll chew you up oh here she comes she's a man eater and something that rhymes with up and it was more oh. complete and then played it to his girlfriend at the time and went she cut the last line and he was like, no, that'll sound really weird. It needs to resolve. And she was like, no, oh, just do it. And then he was like, and that's what's made the song really iconic. Is that slightly unusual structure of the chorus. to the chorus. Yeah. yeah. How um, funny. Oh, that was interesting. But yeah. yeah. Uh, but yes, that is my number five pick. And we will play a little snippet for you now. So here is uh, Sir Holland Oates. 
with his song Manita. Very good. Um, just for the record, while you were talking, I was listening a bit, but I was mainly uh, thinking about Hall of Notes singing Nelly Furtado's Man Eater. And I think mm. they should record it. And then I was like, oh, that's, but it's really confusing because then people will download the wrong song. But then also maybe that could make them both more money. And I thought, what's happened to Nelly Furtado? Mm. Have you heard any of her stuff recently? I've not heard any of her stuff recently. No, no. I'm like a bird. I want to fly away. That was yeah. huge when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all the stuff she did with uh, Timberland, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Promiscuous. That was a Yeah. Did she track. do something with Wycliffe Jean or something? Oh, that, that was Shakira. But they were all on yeah. the videos at the same mm-hmm. time when I was mm-hmm. a kid. They were. Which kind of means that they're yeah. collaborating in some way. Yeah. I'm on the form today. Yeah. Um, yeah, really good. Love Hollow Notes. Um, I remember explaining to... Uh, we did a summer school together. We did. Many years ago at drama school. Um, <laughs> and did uh, You Make My Dreams Come yeah. True. And explaining to them all that they needed to bring blazers in so they could roll their sleeves up to their elbows. <laughs> and they had Absolutely. no idea what I was talking Absolutely. about. You and I once went to a party dressed as Hogan Oaks. I've just remembered that. We did. I forgot about that. <laughs> I completely forgot about that. Was that in America? No, no, it was it was uh, in our third year of drama school. There you are. Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, Katie's birthday. There we are. Um, okay, my choice. Mm-hmm. My first number five uh, is um, one that completely came out of nowhere. I really nearly didn't think of it or pick it. And I doubt anyone listening would have thought of this one either. Um, But you know uh, that I'm a a big James Taylor fan. You've mentioned him once or twice. Once or twice. um, To the point where, um, I mean, I was brought up on him and I I was kind of played the songs for years and years and years. You were brought up by him. I was. I feel like he's my dad. You, um, in a, you were found in a cave by James Taylor, and he, oh, he rescued me rescued with his you. little honey-like voice. Yeah, yeah. And said, "Come on, little baby, come out of the cave." Um, yeah, he was just lovely to as a father. Um, but the thing is about James Taylor is everyone knows that he's a famous folky guitarist. He, he kind of uh, came to fame as um, the backing singer and guitarist for Carol King's Tapestry. Mm-hmm. Um, he ended up coming over to London, doing uh, using up some old Beatles recording sessions in Abbey Road. Sorry, just before you carry on, uh, your man-eater idea. Yeah. I've just had a great... It was business. a mistake that's become an idea. I've just had a great business idea for Carol mm-hmm. King. If she wants to um, diversify her portfolio of work, yeah, she needs to open up a chain mm-hmm. of outdoor yeah. Spanish mm-hmm. restaurants and call it Carol King's Tapas Tree. Oh, that's fantastic. Right? That's absolutely she need to do brilliant. That? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because she's well into trees. Mm. She spends almost all of her time out in the countryside yeah. um, with conservation. She runs loads of Save the Trees programmes. Well, so really, all the profits synergy. go to trees. Yeah. It is synergy. Yeah, tapas oh. tree, right. Okay. Carol, well, if you steal my idea, I'll hunt you down. Uh, oh, okay. oh, no, well, <laughs> changed. I was giving it to her. But then I realised how lucrative that could be, and now I want a, want a slice of that cake. I feel like if you she wasn't involved, you wouldn't be able to get very far with it. Yeah. You can't just call it Carol King's Tapas Tree without but, having some kind of involvement of Carol King. It's my IP, though, so... 
but her name is her IP. Mm. Anyway, you all know James Taylor, right? Um, lovely guy, uh, also a heroin addict and an incredible complex character. Um, we saw him live, actually, didn't oh, we? Yeah, um, phenomenal. Supporting Paul Simon, that was the yeah. best day ever. Yeah. Um, and Bonnie Raitt, yeah, actually. Yeah, Bonnie, Bonnie Raitt, Raitt James Taylor. James Taylor, James Taylor, supporting Paul Simon. I mean, yeah. What's ridiculous. ridiculous. Amazing. Um, but James Taylor, uh, on a lot of his uh, kind of singles and, and albums, when the demos were taken forth and, you know, arranged with a bigger um, kind of orchestra, he was still quite selective. He didn't have a massive band. and um, But the musicians he did have were incredible. Um, people like Steve Gadd, uh, who mm-hmm. also plays with Paul, Paul Simon, one of my favourite drummers of all time. And he also uh, worked with a guy called Michael Brecker, um, who has played for just about everyone. He's another session player. Um, but there's a, a, a tune um, called Don't Let Me Be Lonely Tonight, um, which is one of my favourite kind of James Taylor songs, partly because it's kind of couldn't, it could be written by someone else um, in the sense that it's kind of a, a, a romantic pop jazz uh, love song about, you know, don't let me be lonely tonight. You know, let, mm-hmm. why don't you, you know, why don't we hook up? And it's got this wonderful outro about 30, 40 seconds um, where Michael Brecker just has this wonderful solo. And it's not kind of massively featured. Yes, it is a solo, but it's not kind of up in the mix. It's just in the background, almost like you're in the cafe. If you're in the Blue Note in New York or something, and I imagine, never been there. Um, and, and you're, you know, think, you know, you might have something with, with someone mm-hmm. who you fancy, or they might fancy you. Yeah. And they could be anyone, of course. Yeah. Uh, Depends if they've seen, seen the saxophone. If they've seen the saxophone. Yeah. Um, this is going on in the background, but but the, it's such a good quality piece of musicianship. I just think it's completely under the radar, and it just kind of came into my head. And I thought, hang on, I'll have a listen to that. And it is, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant pop jazz uh, saxophone solo, and I think that it really needs a mention. And it means I get to talk about James Taylor for a bit because I love uh, him, Excellent. but also Michael Brecker, responsible for loads and loads of um, uh, great session work. Um, so yeah, uh, really would recommend it. Again, 1972. So way before we were thinking about jazz uh, 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 saxophones being involved in uh, mainstream pop songs. I think I think that's a really good point though, because like I, I think probably for most people, um, unless you really are a kind of sax aficionado, you would probably be introduced to how great the saxophone is an instrument because it would have cropped up on something that an artist you liked had done anyway. It's not like yeah. you're, you go, you know, that's how I've kind of found most of mine is it's it's through songs that I listen to because I happen to like that artist. And then one particular song of that artist that I loved suddenly put a sax in and I went, oh God, that's a really interesting instrument. And yeah. found my way in that way rather than kind of, yeah, seeking out songs because I love saxophone. Yeah. Which I don't necessarily, um, until I hear it and go, oh, that's great. I think that's true, and and I think also what I like about this is that it, 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 you know, most of the songs that I've picked, and I'm sure there are some similarities with you as well. They're either heavily featured solos in the middle of songs, or indeed they're the riffs that everyone knows, yeah. right? So uh, this is a great example of uh, a little kind of passage of music that dovetail. You know, bookends uh, a wonderful, um, a wonderful song that I love very much. That, that I just think is a, a brilliant piece of musicianship. Lovely. Give it a listen. Let's have a little listen. Don't Let Me Be Lonely Tonight by James Taylor featuring Michael Brecker. No, I don't want to be lonely tonight. 
Jimmy Tails. Jimmy Tay Tay. Jimmy Tay Tay. Um, okay, moving swiftly on mm-hmm. to uh, my number four pick of my top five. Uh, we're going a bit more contemporary here uh, with a song that was released in 2011, although that is a Ooh. decade ago now, um, which is depressing. Uh, and it is uh, Lady Gaga's The Edge of Glory. Ah, uh, great shout. Great I, shout. I love this song. Um, as a lot of you might be surprised to know, I'm a huge Lady Gaga fan. I I think she is a bit of a genius, actually. Um, I think I I I admire so much uh, her just steadfast, uh, like artistic um, trajectory that she has that isn't doesn't seem to be reliant on any people around her or any kind of producers telling her to go one way or the other because she seems to have made herself more and more niche every album she's released since she was successful like mm. from from her first kind of um just dance and all that thing that, that you could kind of dismiss as relatively commercial kind of mid noughties pop um every album since then has has been more and more kind of seemingly her own kind of artistic uh uh style and if she suddenly decides that like um uh with uh uh, uh joanne she wants to do a country album she'll just go and do that and Mm -hmm. there doesn't seem to be any kind of consideration of where her fan base is who her audience is it's all about her own progression as an artist and i really admire that and i think if you look at her kind of training and the fact that she's a juilliard trained kind of performer um which just comes through she's kind of got those chops to, to back it up and she's someone that i think is genuinely driven by her love of performing rather than kind of money or commercial success or anything like that um which which i think yeah resonates on how kind of wide-ranging her music is and um her different styles that she kind of goes to and this one is very much a kind of 1980s rock ballad <laughs> uh uh largely up-tempo rock ballad um but uh, yeah, v- very much uh, the sound influenced by Springsteen, um, in particularly uh, because of her use of the the legend that is Clarence Clemens, one of the greatest, if yeah. not the greatest, rock saxophonist of all time. Probably is the greatest. Yeah. Um, who of course was famously uh, uh, the E Street Band, Bruce Springsteen's band, uh, saxophonist. Um, and and no doubt we will be talking about him in more detail. Uh, perhaps slightly later on I'm giving a thing away yes um, but I, I was interested to learn that um, the song um, she wrote it um, uh, after shortly after her her grandfather passed away and uh, she said the whole song is about this look that her grandfather gave her grandmother that she just before he died that she kind of saw this kind of almost wry smile and him kind of saying like i've won i've won the game <laughs> and she never thought about end the end of life as almost being like that like you're a champion you did it you got there and now i'm ready to go and that's yeah. what edge of glory is about lyrically which i never realized before which i thought was really interesting that's um, fascinating yeah um it was her 10th consecutive top 10 single on the billboard charts in america um it was uh recorded in one take um the whole vocal line was recorded in one take. That's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, yeah, in her natural vocal tone, apparently. Um, 
the producer and her co-writer on the song, Fernando Garibay, said um, that apparently it was actually really um, risky uh, for her to include the sax solo because the way that kind of commercial music works is basically everything is predicated on um, airplay, on radio, right? Even right. to this day, even with the rise of Spotify and iTunes and things like that, what is going to make a song money is if people hear it on the radio. Yeah. So most commercial pop takes its cues from what's on heavy rotation on uh, uh, on radio stations. Yeah. And apparently at this point, out of the sort of thousands and thousands of songs that are on radio airplay, not a single song had a sax solo in 2011. And so that's why a lot of people are like, what wow. are you doing? <laughs> like, right. there's no there's no market for this. Yeah. It's untested. You know, we don't... And, and as we kind of said at the beginning, interesting talking about kind of sax, sax solos, yeah, kind of falling by the wayside from the 90s and, 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 and certainly haven't really made a huge resurgence um, uh, up to this, this point, 2011. So it's not surprising that there wasn't. But, but yeah, for her to kind of stick to what she wanted and said, no, this is what this song needs. Um, but that's her, right? Yeah. That's her. Exactly. I mean, I'm to be honest. I'm no secret that I'm, I'm. I don't listen to Lady Gaga for fun, you know. Um, and the times I hear it by accident are always in clubs because they're majoritarily, majoritarily dance tracks with kind of thumping, um, kind of drum machines behind them. Having said that, the live stuff, the performances, and uh, her band and the choreography, and and you know, it, 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 it's an incredible show yeah. piece of piece of show, and she's a wonderful showwoman. And also, I love seeing her in interviews and completely not uh, playing into the media narratives of what she's expected to be as a woman, and playing with gender roles and breaking boundaries in a way that no other star of her size has ever done yeah. and and also i love her kind of origin story of someone who was always being told actually she she you know was was too uh unattractive uh to yeah. be a star and then completely reinventing herself and then using that platform through yeah. performance art i would say yeah. really um is phenomenal yeah um so yeah, yeah wonderful woman to have in the world absolutely and uh, also yeah you see her performing uh vocals uh, at a piano um, and you yeah. just go oh wow yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. and 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 uh, uh, now kind of yeah starting out in a, a what will be probably a phenomenal acting career as well because mm. um yeah star is born is a, is a sensational performance from her um would you say also the edge of glory is reminds me of um our good friend uh, and regular podcast um uh guest one he loves starship doesn't he and um, mm. um it reminds yeah, me of Jefferson that kind of it's, 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 eerie it's era. That early, that early eighties synth, synth rock pop kind of sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, for sure. Um, uh, so interestingly, um, Clarence Clemens. Um, it was a bit of a scheduling nightmare <laughs> because she didn't want him to just kind of record his part separately. She really wanted him to be part of that process. Yeah. Um, so he ended up flying from florida to new york and recorded the solo from midnight till 3am and then got on a plane and flew back again wow um but but apparently she said just um uh yeah send him send, send him the track in advance and when he gets here just let him play and that was so the whole sax solo is written by him um Amazing. obviously um because yeah you're not going to write something for clarence clemens are you um but really lovely he said uh, he was uh quoting an interview after uh recording it and he said um uh, I was really surprised to even get paid. I can't believe something that feels so good earns me money. 
Oh. <laughs> I would have just done it for the fun of it. Um, that was really lovely because he's a, he's a he's a true musician. He does it for the love of it, you know. I think. Um, and you're right. We are going to talk about him later because he's a, he's on one of mine. Um, but interestingly enough, I know that he he it was kind of an uh, after the track was released uh, yeah. after the track was recorded. They were making the music video, and Lady Gaga put him in the music yeah. video. Then yeah. he is someone who's also been in front of the camera as an actor and done quite a bit, but often didn't feature in any kind of music video. Yeah. Certainly not for Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so he he was in the music video yeah. two days before he so, died. Yeah, yeah. Last thing, last um, thing he did. Yeah. So I think that the fact that she she managed to not only include. Uh, a well-known muso yeah. um, and bring him to an, an audience of relatively, you know, an audience that he might not have been exposed to before. For sure, not yeah. only on the track, but also in the video. Something really lovely about yeah. that. And I, I think it's just another example of Gaga kind of having a bit of a classy streak. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Lovely. Great. Well, here nice. we go. Here is The Edge of Glory. Very nice, very nice. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? It's yep. good, and um, and also again, credit to her voice on that yeah. as well, being yeah, not messed with or yeah, yeah. tuned. She, yeah. she's very good, especially when you, that that kind of rise that she does sort of up the octave as well. Yeah, so, yeah, it's the stupid. Fact that that's one take is just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, amazing. All right, my number four, lovely. This takes us to your favourite era. To the 1980s, and more specifically, 1984. Oh, yeah. And this uh, track is probably the one of the most famous, if not the most famous, sax line in the history of saxophones. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is Careless Whisper. Oh, yes. By Wham. Uh, Is it by Wham or is it by George Michael? Um, I think it's written by, co-written by Andrew Ridgely and uh, George yeah. Michael, so it but must be a wham. That's interesting. But I feel like Ridgely doesn't appear at all in the video for it. Which, to be honest, wouldn't surprise me all it that much. It must have been the end, the sort of end end of wham, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, well, in, in that time. still would have been wham. But yeah, must must have been coming to an end there. Um, let me just check. So... Okay, it says song by English singer George Michael, written mm-hmm. by Michael and Andrew Andrew Ridgely of Ram. So it was really yeah, sorry, it was released as a George Michael single, um, because it's from Make It Big. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, but uh, yeah, he wrote uh, Andrew Ridgely wrote it with him, which interesting. is interesting. Um, also interesting because Michael kind of took a lot of the lead on lyrics and and things like that, and said he spent like three months writing this song in his head. Yeah. Um. Uh, but yeah, of course, because it, it, Wham had become kind of pretty massive, and yeah. when they split up, I mean, it was bigger than the Take That split. You know, yeah, people, yeah, were, yeah, girls yeah. were crying in their bedrooms, um, and uh, and but but he was um, uh, recording it with with a producer called Jerry Wexler, and they kind of got this huge studio, and he'd brought in um, uh, the Muscle Shoals um, crew, the the, the session mm-hmm. uh, musos. Um, who would you know a bit like the Wrecking Crew played on loads of uh, amazing kind of tracks, um, 
And he had this idea of this saxophone riff that he said he got hit him once when he just walked onto a bus. Um, and then the lyrics are all about his first kind of two girlfriends and how he kind of ended up kind of having his first relationship with kind of his second girlfriend, but never stopped seeing the first girlfriend. <laughs> and um, Which is quite interesting yeah. now when we know George Michael as this huge gay icon yeah. who was yeah. constantly having to present as a heterosexual man in a yeah. world that wouldn't allow that. Um um, so I wonder how much of that story also might have been mm. uh, 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 manufactured um, or, or whether, you know, that's kind of true as well. Um, but yeah, he had this idea, went into the studio and they flew uh, the best saxophonists in, in certainly in LA and, and mm-hmm. in, in America to the studio to record it. And Michael just couldn't, couldn't handle any of them. Really? Yeah, apparently... Uh, he just used to kind of very patiently he wasn't a diva about it yeah. but would kind of leave, lean down to the mic in the control booth and just say no 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 it's got to flick up it's got to flick mm-hmm. up into the into the or what we might call a crush note which is kind of famous yeah. in uh, it's that little flick that he wanted um, and none of them could get it even though it was kind of in the score um, and anyway cut long story short he went through 30 saxophonists jeez um and the track was finished. It took about two and a half years uh, wow. from from kind of it, formulating the track to to getting it ready. And he said there were four weeks before they were to to make the video and release the track. Um, and Wexler was this kind of amazing producer that George Michael said he kind of loved working with. And then he just went back into the studio on his own and completely redid the whole track as he what envisioned it yeah, in his mind yeah. without the technical knowledge that Wexler had offered. Um, and it seemed to be going much better, except the sax solo wasn't, the sax riff wasn't there again. He couldn't find anyone mm-hmm. who did it. So back in London, uh, he called a load of saxophonists and kind of auditioned them. Like he just called them all to the studio and said, just wait in line because we're probably not going to get it, you know, right. and we'll record a load of different ones. Um, and I think number 12 um, was a sax player called Steve Gregory. Right. Um, and he goes into the studio and he said the guy before him just said oh for goodness sake it's only going to be a little b-side anyway i'm not going to stay here and cope with this diva i'm just going to leave so right. kind of and yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. quite a lot of these big players have done that and steve gregory just said um and he was playing a, a saxophone a tenor sax in b flat um um and it was a, a a mark six um which meant that it didn't have a top f sharp key and most of all these sax players had very similar instruments mm-hmm, mm-hmm. didn't have a top half sharp and he said well the problem with the line that you want in the key that you're singing it in is that you can't flick up to that note because there's no top sharp, uh, uh, f sharp key he said play it 10 bpm slower and i'll play the line mm-hmm. in the key a semitone below and then you can speed it up again and it'll be in the same key so they did that and that was a George Michael who wasn't actually there for this conversation walked in when he was playing it and said that's it that's the one that's the one I want that's the sound I've been looking for for wow. three two and a half years yeah and it was all because the town the, the, the sound he wanted was only achievable really yeah. if you'd slowed it down and, and sped it up and it also played into this synthesized sound which was yeah. so popular in the 80s um and and kind of heralded by by songs like this so wow. i just love the story yeah. of of that being the sound that we hear is a, a slowed down saxophone sped up back to the original B, B, bpm Brilliant. um in order to get that out and had steve gregory not just been honest about that rather than trying to achieve the impossible which a lot yeah. of session musos want to do yeah, yeah, yeah. he just went no nah, it's too hard to do that let's do this and that Great. was the sound they wanted so um 
yeah, a really nice story there. Um, and another example of George Michael being one of these musicians. He wasn't a manufactured kind of, you know, pop guy who just turned up and did what he was told. And he was someone who really, really fought to try and make brilliant songs. And Careless Whisper, whether you like that style of music or whether you're, a, you know, you find it a bit cheesy or overplayed, you can't deny that it's a wonderful piece of music, uh, songwriting. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely yeah it's it's a yeah it's a great song and george michael is a is a, yeah a phenomenal songwriter i'm a big fan yeah when you look at some of the later albums as yeah, well yeah yeah listen I mean, without I, prejudice is this this listen without prejudice is one of my favorite albums phenomenal album. yeah um and someone yeah sadly missed george michael yeah, i'd be absolutely. interested to see what he would be making now and one, one of those guys where people were just stunned by all the amazing stuff that came out after he died that he'd never told anyone yeah just all the charity work and everything he'd done that he just sort of did for himself and didn't he never do kind of any glory or anything like that and then suddenly all this stuff comes up like oh he did this for me he bought this for me gave me that and yeah like, oh my god what a dude yeah phenomenal yeah lovely good guy right there you are should have we have a little, little listen bit. i mean you all know it anyway yeah. but um let's have a little listen to that wonderful opening riff and we can all picture steve gregory in the studio getting a pat on the back from george michael careless whisper 1984 by george michael <laughs> I, I, it's so weird I, I can not just know the song incredibly well but the minute I hear it I can see the video really clearly in my mind <laughs> yeah. if it's like feathered bleach blonde hair and it's, yeah everything his yeah. kind of yeah, his longing looks and yeah yeah, yeah. Um, amazing cool lovely so on to my number three uh, and it is from 1979 and it is The Logical Song by Super Trump. now this is a great shout because I could forget that it's got a sax yep. part in it. Yeah, yeah, quite like quite a large sax yeah. part for like the last sort of minute and a half of the song, <laughs> um, which yeah, uh, often people forget. But um, yeah, for those of you who don't know, Super Tramp. Um, why don't you call them Prog? Prog Pop. Prog Pop, maybe. Prog yeah. Pop. Prog Pop. Hello, uh, Jonathan Prog Pop. Jonathan yeah. Prog Pop. It's uh, yeah, um, obviously yeah, very big in the kind of nineteen seventies, moving into the early eighties. This was from um, probably their, their kind of biggest album um, of all time, which is Breakfast in America, which also features the song Breakfast in America, which uh, a lot of you might know from the, um, forget his name now, but uh, uh, Travi McCoy. Take a look at my girlfriend. She's oh, the only one I know. Uh, yeah, yeah, completely. Which yeah. people often don't know that that was originally a song by Super Trap in the 70s. Um, and there was another cover of it, the, the dance song as well. Uh, so well, yeah. So sorry, uh, I'm talking yeah. about Breakfast in America, but but uh, yes, the logical song. Um, of course, most people will probably know better uh, the scooter version. That's it, scooter. Scooter. That's how I think I was introduced to that. I uh, do you know what? So was I probably, and and I do believe actually it is Roger Hodgson's vocal line that's sped up. Uh, so that's where you get the weird sort of very high pitched. Uh, voice in it but I think it is actually that line that's sampled and then sped up um, but yeah so Roger Hodgson lead singer and songwriter um, of Supertramp uh, wrote it based on his experiences of 10 years at boarding school and um, the whole song actually is um, yeah he said it, the main message is please tell me who I am and it was a kind of indictment of 
even you know in the sort of uh, nineteen early nineteen sixties as a as a kid was being was very aware that he wasn't being taught how to be an adult, and he said that's mm. where you kind of had you know how curious children turn into cynical adults because they're at the age where they need to kind of learn all the other stuff around academia they don't get it so then they end up kind of resenting the world for not giving them the education yeah. that they crave at that age and um and so that's kind of all what fed into into the song um that's fascinating yeah um it, yeah it was was their biggest hit on the u.s billboard chart um he actually, interesting. He he wrote the song apparently six months before he ever actually showed it to the rest of the band. So he wrote it, recorded it, made a demo, all like secretly whilst sound checks were happening, whilst he wasn't needed anymore, and he was going off and writing it. Oh, really? Because it was sort of very personal to him. He kind of didn't want anyone's input until he was kind of happy to show it to them. So oh, nice. it was about six months later, and then he yeah showed the rest of the band, and um, yeah, so they started working from it there. He won a 1980 Ivan Novello Award for the song, the best uh... song of 1980. Um, and uh, the uh, saxophonist um, is a gentleman called John Helliwell, um, who was the saxophonist for Supertramp, um, was also apparently the MC of the band, as he's credited. So when they did live gigs, apparently he'd do like a warm-up act. Oh. Yeah. And just do a bit of stand-up whilst the band were getting ready, like in between their set. That's a really weird conversation. You meet him at a party. So what yeah. do you, so yeah, yeah, work in finance. What do you do? Oh, I'm the saxophonist and MC for Supertramp. Oh, I got a better one coming up later about that right okay um so uh yeah he um uh today uh is the band leader for the super big tramp band um which is uh, a band that does super tramp covers in a big band style and he's the saxophonist oh, band excellent. leader for them excellent um, uh yeah interestingly uh the sax solo was recorded in a toilet cubicle Oh. because where they were in the studio was apparently it was quite a small recording room and there's quite a lot of instrumentalists on that song and um uh roger hodgson was worried that that the sax he wanted any time that the sax is in the song he wanted it to be very prominent and feel very separate and he was worried that having him record in the room you'd hear him bleed on yeah. other bits of the track and things like that and he did, and whereas all the other instruments were kind of being recorded in the same location live he wanted the sax to really feel separate so that's why yeah they sent him off to the toilet to record oh, all his parts that's fascinating it's quite interesting yeah you do hear about um singers who want a lot of reverb or anything like recording in in bathrooms and things yeah because i mean the in the it's the opposite of most recording logic right you don't yeah. want any reflective surfaces around yeah um where and you want it kind of absorbing any of the any of the ring um but but if you go for the complete opposite it's going to stick out like a sore thumb and that's obviously what worked in this case yeah absolutely and and i think i mean to my ear of my five that i've chosen i think this sounds like the most accomplished mm. uh solo because often with a sax often sax solos are put into ballads right because there is something kind of longing and romantic about the sound yeah. the saxophone makes so you obviously don't a lot of the time don't get to show off that much as a saxophonist yeah on a rock or pop song because normally you're wanting those kind of low long drawn out notes yeah whereas if you listen to the end of logical song it's like quite fast sort of staccato runs up and down and, and it's things that I've not heard before from a saxophone, certainly in a kind of pop song. Um, so that's why, yeah, kind of st stuck out to me as well as being very different in terms of how we utilise a sax solo. 
Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Great choice. And again, completely left field. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Lovely. Should we have a listen? Let's have a little listen to The Logical Song by Supertramp, not Scooter. <laughs> I do hope um, the guy from Scooter's okay. I you think about him a lot. I do. We, we talk about Scooter quite a lot. We do talk about Scooter quite a lot. I think I said to you a few weeks ago that if I had uh, a, like an endless amount of money, I'd put on a production of Othello with Dave Benson Phillips as Othello and the guy from Scooter as Iago. You did say that. Yeah, and I stand by it. Yeah. So anyone out there that wants to finance that, ah! let me know. You're gonna lose or make so much money. <laughs> Exactly. Like, that's not a three-star review, is it? Who that's either the, yeah. the best thing that's ever happened, and it's artistic genius, or you'll never Look, work again. exactly what I said. It's completely fueling my own ego as a director, and I want to put as many obstacles in front of myself to prove that I can get Olivier award-winning performances. At what's the same what's Scooter doing? The doing Othello? What's what's Scooter's? Uh, what's your, what, how do you envisage him doing it? Um, give us a line from Iago. Mm. Um, Tis true, I hate them all. <laughs> I like it. I think that's how it's got it, energy. It, yeah. Shakespeare for the young people. Yeah, you know, put yeah. your hands up. Yeah, I'm arresting you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, great, very good. I like Scooter. Let's do. And also, I remember humming that, and mm. Dad going to me, "How do you know that song? The logical song." <laughs> it's like. What's it called? The lot? Oh, it's a dance track. We heard it. Uh, someone was playing it, you know. Yeah. And uh, him being amazed that Supertramp were coming back. Yeah. He was a big Supertramp fan. Yeah. Also, according to Wikipedia, I've just checked, progressive pop. Progressive prog pop. Yeah. Nailed it. Nailed but it. then they're also described as a rock band, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, My turn? Yeah. My number three. Your number three? Uh, again, I don't know if this is an obvious choice to lots of people listening or not. I, m- maybe if, if you're kind of thinking along the lines of these big 80s tunes with kind of yeah long drawn out romantic sax solos you might not think of this however um i feel like a lot of musos will will pick this track um and this is us and them by pink floyd from 1973's masterpiece dark side of Mm. the moon um this is a a phenomenal track i could talk about the track all all day um but but I'll try not to because the the bit I want to talk about really is is specifically the sax solo in the middle, but also there's sax all the way through it. Uh, the album version of this is seven minutes and fifty one seconds long. Yeah, it just goes on forever, and it's so layered. I mean, I love this album. It it re- and it's a cliche, but when I first you know stuck it on, and someone obviously went, you need to know this album, yeah. and I did, and I I just went completely somewhere else. Yeah. It really took me out of my little teenage bedroom life and. Um, and showed me what what incredible sonic rock music could be like if you had the skill and integrity and intelligence of Pink Floyd. Yeah. Um, and also I like Us and Them because it, it's a track written largely by Richard Wright yeah. um, with lyrics uh, from Roger Waters. 
even though Dave Gilmer sings on it. So it really feels like a Floyd number. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's not just driven by one of them. And I think The Wall is like such a Roger Waters, like yeah. you really know yeah. who, who were behind a lot of the albums with Floyd. But but Dark Side of the Moon in this particular track as well is a real nice fusion of them. Uh, written much earlier than uh, 73 for a short, I think it was an indie film Richard Wright was composing. And they showed it to one of their producers and they said, absolutely not. It, it's kind of too sad producer said it reminds me of church <laughs> you know right yeah um but again it's a kind of scathing attack on consumerism i never realized it would have such a, a strong mm-hmm. link to hall of notes um yeah, yeah but it's kind of the same thing about saying you know we need to stop kind of buying in this huge capitalist kind yeah. of um idea which of course actually a lot of tracks on dark side of the moon speak to namely money yeah um, which actually is in my honorable mentions for sax solos as well because yeah. the saxophone in money is excellent too i, I mean I, I i i should have really picked that one in in some ways um but the reason i i like this i think is it's played by dick parry um and uh, it, it's a real example of jazz tenor sax playing over the top of synthy swashy prog rock mm-hmm. and when you've got a guitarist like dave gilmore doing incredible things at the top end of a stratocaster or a telly like why would you have a saxophone in it i understand why you'd have the sax solo in money because yeah. it's very different yeah i don't imagine dave gilmore playing that line on a sax yeah, i think the yeah. sax solo in this could be a dave gilmore guitar yeah. solo yeah but it isn't. And the yeah. fact that they've made that choice, for some reason, I just really, really enjoy. Um, and it's the sax is teased all the way through the first kind of, uh, I don't know, four and a half minutes of the song. And then you get one of the band's roadies doing some talking about life. You know, mm-hmm. he's one of these guys. And they include recordings from people all the way through Dark Side of the Moon, not spoken word. And he's apparently one of their roadies. Really? And he's, yeah, talking you know about yeah, yeah. life and the world and philosophy. And, yeah. You know, that's have a good time you can't can't ask for more than that yeah, and then yeah. suddenly in this incredible dick parry uh sax solo comes in um and just takes the song somewhere else and i think that that's what justifies the song being being the length that it is and i think it adds a lot to what is essentially quite a simple sparse lyric mm-hmm. and a simple sparse arrangement difficult to play because it's all ridiculous sus chords that make yeah. your brain hurt yeah. um uh, but if I mean, if you want to break it down, it's essentially D and an E all the way through. Yeah. Um, which again, not necessarily that easy to play on a B flat instrument. So there's a lot of skill it's involved there, yeah. um, in that as well. Bit of a shout out, actually. I mean, controversial because of the whole Waters fan, Gilmore fan mm-hmm. kind of. Who are you more into after the split? You'd go in and see either Pink Floyd with Roger Waters, or yeah. you'd see Dave Gilmore. And I adore. I think it's the live at Earl's Court. Uh, concert is it called Pulse? Pulse, yeah. Yeah, and you have Richard Wright, uh, who is no longer with us. Yeah, uh, Nick Mason, who I think is is still with us. I think Nick Mason's still alive. Uh, drumming around somewhere. Um, you don't have Roger Waters, um, but you do have Dave Gilmore, and you you have an an incredible lineup of. Uh, you have also have Sam Brown singing uh, yeah. a lot of the vocal solos from um yeah. from that track. Uh, uh, great, from that album uh, Great Gig in the Sky and, yes yeah. namely Great Gig in the Sky yeah. and you also have some, just some incredible uh, session musicians um, playing these these amazing solos as well and that watching that live is what really got me into mm-hmm. um, Dick Perry's solos on the actual album yeah. um, so credit to that there as well uh, sorry for Roger Waters fans 
But yeah, yeah us and them, great, great sax solo. One of many on Dark Side of the Moon. Absolutely. Really adds to it. Should we yeah. have a listen? Right, let's have a listen. my top two and in at number two is uh again kind of uh uh similarly to uh, what you're saying about careless whisper this is probably one that, that a lot of people would think of fairly quickly after saying name the best sax solos mm-hmm. um and that is david bowie's young americans now i think this is a fantastic choice i think this might be my favorite david bowie song but then also, Interesting. depending on what point of, you could I could have four different favorite yeah. depending on what month it is. It's uh, yeah, and I I completely agree. And um, I've never understood because quite famously, Young Americans. So it was released in nineteen seventy five from the album of the same name, Young Americans. And quite famously, this album is like known as critically derided. Like so many people said, oh, this was him doing a weird like soul thing before he went good and interesting again and like, i love this album i don't yeah. get the i don't get the hate for it people just went oh he went went a bit mainstream and did all this kind of weird soul stuff and i was like it's great i love this stuff yeah i i don't get why why that happens either i also think it's lovely because you, you talk to a lot of the musicians he worked with on young americans yeah. and you could get into black appropriation because he yeah. spent an awful lot of time researching and working with black american musicians and then hired them all Mm. a lot of them for this track and every single one of those musicians who were interviewed about working with him on young americans say that he was a joy Mm -hmm. and incredibly generous and was there to learn and expand his knowledge and i don't think you have any of the quirky interesting stuff that came afterwards if it wasn't for young americans anyway so anyone who says that is in my opinion talking out their ass yeah absolutely (laughs) um so yeah so i mean despite that it's still um, was named uh, 486th on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs Ever Made. Um, it was uh, 47 on Pitchfork's 200 Greatest Songs of the 70s. So there are fans yeah. out there. Um, uh, 44, I think it was actually. Uh, and uh, yeah, Bowie himself referred to it as a plastic soul number. Well, it was the kind of genre that plastic he, soul, yeah, yeah, sort of invented for this this album and 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 this song in particular. Um, yeah, really, and but it is also in its own right Bowie quirky stuff. Like it's yeah. not a simple just Motown ripoff. Like no. there's bit like there's a weird bit where he just sings "I Heard the News Today, Oh Boy," which is a yeah. weird thing to put in the song. Like, day day in the life of the Beatles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, uh, um, but but interestingly, um, 
uh, John Lennon is on the album. He plays on Young Americans on one of the tracks. Can't remember which one. Whoa. And and he's credited as co-writing another one of the tracks. Again, I've forgotten which one it is. But so there is a weird Lennon connection there anyway. So maybe that was a sort of an inside thing. So I'll sing your line because you've done this work on my... I, I don't know, but it, that can't be a coincidence. There must be a, it's obviously a deliberate nod there to yeah. um Also, what blew my mind even more was who came up with the backing vocal arrangement. Talk to me. Luther Vandross. Luther Vandross. Luther Vandross ah. wrote the backing part for that. And it's all Luther Vandross's backing singers. He got them all in. I have a vague memory of which is really interesting of of them being interviewed actually and that um, and me not realizing that what that maybe maybe Luther Vandross wasn't in that interview but mm. there were there was some there was some conversation about the backing vocals being created in a room and kind of brought into Bowie yeah yeah uh, so that was that, that was Vandross that did it. wow yeah well I mean that's pretty good isn't it yeah. pedigree wise yeah and it makes sense because there is a there is a, I mean yes as as you say there could be problems with the fact that this is a white singer kind of um uh doing a lot of traditionally kind of african-american uh, blue eyed soul isn't it? Like, yeah um uh but i guess maybe that is where that that there is a lot of authenticity in the song coming from the people that he'd had around him working on it with him i guess collaboratively yeah. um but yeah I, I i just think it's a really terrific song and this one is slightly different in terms of the the that this the sax in this is actually used as the kind of opening riff and it's a repeated motif riff um uh which is the kind of more iconic part of the song than necessarily the sax solos in the song that are featured as well um and uh, uh yeah it's just it's a it's a a, a really kind of upbeat um similar um actually in theme to uh, weirdly to Manita, which I had no idea that Manita was about that, but obviously Young Americans it's a little bit clearer because there is references to McCarthyism and Nixon, who I think had only uh, resigned Gosh, two yeah. days before the song came out. Wow, um, seventy-five yeah would have been, um, and so th- th- there's a lot of kind of yeah uh, 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 cultural references in there, a lot about what it means to be young and American. Um, although looking at it obviously slightly earlier. Um, you hadn't quite had the kind of Reaganist kind of uh, yuppieism coming in yet that Man Eater is maybe talking about a little bit more, but yeah. but still interesting that that um, he could see that that was kind of getting there because that was a lot about you know those upwardly mobile kind of mm. people um, already in seventy five kind of pop populated parts of America. Um, we know where that led. Yes. So the uh, saxophonist was uh, a guy called David Sanborn who um, is credited as being the most influential saxophonist across pop, R&B, and everything in between for nearly six decades, apparently. So wow. he's like the dude. And I mean, honestly, look up David Sanborn and read the list of people, because it's every... Like, think yeah. of someone, and David Sanborn's played with them. Like, <laughs> it is insane. You can see why he's kind of known as that. But yeah, he's basically the dude of pop and rock saxophonists. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, uh, did, did a lot with um, James Taylor, funny enough. Ah. Uh, yeah. Um, but, um, Interesting question as well. I, I I was not knowing who played that. I was thinking how much sax might Bowie have played on that because mm. he was a sax player himself. He does play he? sax, yeah. He played an alto sax, yeah. Um, maybe just not as good as this dude. Yeah, know? well, clearly. Um, but yeah, but but there's some things that apparently make it quite unique and make the sax in this song stand out. And one of them is that Sanborn is actually playing the sax 
using a guitar wah-wah pedal. So it's an electric oh. sax that's being played through a wah-wah pedal, right. um, which is interesting. Uh, and also apparently that um, uh, he does, he plays an A to G to F sharp transition, which is apparently impossible to do on a on a saxophone. Wow. Um, and there's very few saxophonists that can actually play that, which is again what gives it that kind of very unique sound. Just um, mad skills. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, just a cracking tune, and the sax adds so much to it, uh, and really evocative of that style that he's trying to create. I think. Yeah, and I, and I think I, I kind of, I, there's sax on "Let's Dance" and a few other bow yeah. tracks as well. But I, I, I think this is a, a real feature and and a real classy choice. Let's have a listen. Let's have a listen, Young Americans. just miss david doing some very very good bowie impressions there mm. Mm. um but you're gonna save that yeah i'll save that for later on save it, save it for the live show okay the live podcast macabre yeah when we go on tour on the road oh are we doing that yeah why when not? i haven't got time we um, i tell you what get, yeah. you know get on twitter if you want to see us do a live podcast yeah they're all the rage they are aren't they which mm. is weird isn't it because it's it, it the whole medium is not live it's all recorded yeah. Uh, yeah, point, I, isn't it? I went to one Edinburgh Fringe 2019 and it was mind-numbingly boring to just sit there and watch some people record something yeah. and not really acknowledge you being there in the room. Let's not do it. Let's not do it. Um, my next choice, second to last. Well, why not, eh? It's my turn, isn't it? It is. Um, okay, well, this is now, I would say, probably the most famous sax song of all time. Right, well, yeah. Do you know what I'm going to say? Of course, it can only be one thing. It is Baker Street by Gerald Rafferty. Jerry Raffles. Very, very lovely Jerry Rafferty. I say lovely, I never knew him. But (laughs) I just think he would be really nice listening to all his songs. Yeah. I love him. I think he's great. He's great. Um, Steeler's Wheel, of course. Yeah, well, that's very importantly Steeler's Wheel. Um... Uh, not only for their association with Billy Connolly, mm. um, who played banjo with Jerry Rafferty and, and a few other Scottish musicians, um, but coming from this working class town, Paisley in Glasgow, um, and knowing all these kind of shipbuilders, yeah, and uh, shipbuilders, in case mm-hmm. you missed that, um, not making any of the music I would have expected him to make, um, but yeah, I think people underrate Steeler's Wheel, yeah, um, with some fantastic stuff there, yeah. Yeah, and they did more than stuck in the middle with you. Yeah, everyone. Ju- that's the only one you kind of know, unless yeah. you really, unless yeah. you look into it, right? Um, but yeah, wonderful stuff. And then they broke up quite uh, not well, acrimoniously. Mm-hmm. Um, they mm-hmm. they got into a lot of legal battles because they were kind of suspending contracts that they'd signed with a record company. A lot of people within Steelers Wheel didn't want Jay Rafferty to leave and the band to break up. So he was in this limbo and wasn't allowed to produce any music for nearly four years, um, which is why uh, Baker Street kind of grew into the huge epic that it is now. Because during this time, Jerry Rafferty was living in in Paisley and going down on a sleeper train every evening for uh, appointments with lawyers in London, in Baker Street. Okay. So he would stay with his friend who had a flat in Baker Street, um, 
and kept coming down to try and settle these legal cases so that he could then go and release more music. And of course, when he's doing this, he ends up writing Baker Street in honour of that period of time. Right. Um, it's also a time when he's drinking an awful lot, hence the lines where he says, you'll kind of drink, you'll, you'll drink the night away and forget about everything and talks about a lot of that uh, trouble. Um, and apparently originally Rafferty uh, wanted the, the, in the demo recording of it, um, he had recorded the line on, on a guitar. Um, and you can hear him playing it. Um, and then it, the producer had tried it on guitar and a few people had tried it. He said, no, I'm not sure. And then uh, eventually they got a sax player in um, by the name of Raphael Ravenscroft. Um, okay. Isn't that the best name ever? That's the, that might be the best name I've ever heard. Raphael Ravenscroft. Raphael Ravenscroft. Um, and he was brought in and he did this incredible um, piece of work. We all know the... Now, there are lots of different apocryphal stories about how Raphael Ravenscroft ended up recording this. Right. And I haven't found a single one of them that I think that is actually objectively true. (laughs) Um, The first story I heard about this was that Raphael Ravenscroft... uh, the, the original the original saxophonist who session musician who was booked to play it um couldn't make the recording because he was doing another session so gave it to one of his students i.e Raphael Ravenscroft who then went in that day recorded the session and accidentally ended up playing the most the famous session, saxo right. of all time right um can't find any evidence for that whatsoever Raphael okay. Ravenscroft never said that okay um the other story is that Raphael Ravenscroft uh, claimed that he was played uh, 70, 27 pounds 50 for that session um, and when he cashed the check it bounced so he framed the check and put it on the wall having said that there is no check it's not on his wall okay um, and he's never been able to provide that evidence um, okay but the reason why he said it was in an interview because Jerry Rafferty famously made 80,000 pounds a year from the royalties of that song right so people were kind of trying to make mm-hmm. out that Raphael mm-hmm. was was uh, maybe shortchanged shortchanged he also claims that he wrote the riff said uh oh well if you're asking me if jerry gave me that line or sang that line to me or played that line to me or wrote it down for me he said no he didn't but everyone has recordings of that line on a guitar from the demo before Raphael even was signed to come and do the session so somebody's lying and i don't think it's the one with the recording of them writing the demo so (laughs) you know and also jerry rafferty not famous for ripping people off um so So that's just that's Raphael ravenscroft being a bit of a naughty boy is that i think he is being a bit of a naughty boy and he also made a lot of money from the song um but i think he he thought he was uh he was owed more particularly because it's meant to have had five million performances worldwide this is performances live performances it is one of the highest selling songs of all yeah. time. 1978, this came out. It was huge and led to what became known as the Baker Street phenomenon. Um, after the song was released, sales of saxophones shot through yeah. the roof, yeah. um, uh, which I didn't know, actually, but you, you're not nodding. I, I, I mean, I, I'm just not surprised. Not surprised, I mean, yeah. It's, it's the, you know, I, I, whenever I meet someone that is a saxophonist, I'll go play Baker Street for me now. Yeah. yeah. And they'll go, okay, yeah, it was the first thing I learned how to play because it usually is. Because it is um, kind of the, the best... It, uh, it, it's just, it's it. it's the most iconic saxophone line in history of music. Yeah, bar, bar none. Bar none. Yeah, it is. If if you said to anyone on the street, think of a... What's, what's the first saxophone solo that comes into your mind? 
everyone, yeah. everyone bar none would say Baker Street, right? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, I remember saying to you famously, uh, fam- mm-hmm. fam- not famously, well, mm-hmm. you, but you remind me of this. Yeah. We were walking through town and we were walking through Baker Street Station and mm-hmm. I said, how many millions of people a day, or how many thousands of people a day mm-hmm. do you think end up whistling the Baker Street sax yeah. line as they're moving through Baker Street Station? Yeah. And you said... I said it was three people. Yeah. Um, and you were right. So I don't know yeah. why I was yeah. why I was thinking well, that. But I think cannot that. go through Baker Street Station. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, without thinking of that tune. I also just want to give a little shout out to the fact that I think this song did so much for music production. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. The layers and layers and layers. And when you think of like albums like Sgt. Pepper's who, you know, when the Beatles started multi-tracking... Um, with the four-track recorder, yeah, but yeah. multi-layering that on that and that and putting the tape you know, through again and again and again. This was doing that to an incredible level in 1978. Um, and, and I think that the different, all the different layers and sounds are incredible and hard to replicate live because it's such a, it's such a brilliantly produced album. Yeah, for um, sure lucky that again talked about julian Lippman earlier um who was a session guitarist for a, a lot of uh rafferty's career and played with him live all over the world um and and liam as well uh joe rafferty's drummer and and they all just said you know it was great fun working with joe rafferty but it was also really hard because trying to replicate that stuff on stage is is difficult um there's also one story uh, i love um uh that one someone's found an obscure album um, uh, and I can't remember the name uh, the name of the guy uh, Hal um, his name's Hal oh, it'll come to me in a minute I'll check mm-hmm. um, who actually did have an obscure album track that got very little play and if you listen to the first nine seconds of the song it is the Baker Street riff in a different rhythm oh really so and that did come out before so some people will be like did did Joe Rafferty nick it yeah. And then put it in Baker Street, maybe subliminally. Yeah. And then did Raphael claim that he'd written it on the spot <laughs> in the studio? So maybe, so even if one of those were true, there's, so there's many, still another line somewhere. so many layers to this. Do you see line. what I mean? Yeah. 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 That's um, brilliant. One final thing before mm. I play the track. In an interview, uh, he was asked to play Baker Street in an interview and he said, no, I don't do that. I can't bear doing it anymore. Right. And they said, why? And he went, well, the main thing is that whenever I hear the song actually played, I can hear that it's out of tune. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, because there wasn't any auto-tune. He said, if you listen, there are parts of that track where the saxophone line is flat. And I wish I could go back and record it again. He said, no one seems to care, but to my ear, I can yeah. hear it and it drives me nuts. So I can't even really listen to the song, really, yeah. even though it's kind of made my career, made me who I am. Brilliant. I just want to give a shout out as well to, I think it is the third solo. It's the last solo yeah. that is just utterly insane where he's playing it right up high. And it's yeah. just, it's not the, not the iconic riff you think of, but it's, 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 I guess it's a progress. The whole thing is like a progression, right? In yeah. That, yeah. In that song. And it's like the last part of that. And yeah. it is just unbelievable. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's lovely. And I also just love that underneath the, what's going on mm-hmm. in the background you've yeah. got that going down and I don't know what that is series of guitars and synths in the yeah, bass yeah. and then you've got that sax soaring yeah. through it yeah it's really lovely um, really lovely great song should we have a listen let's have a little listen here's Baker Street by Joe Rafferty 1978 featuring Raphael Ravenscroft
brilliant. Just every time I hear it, it just makes me happy. It is. You it can't help but smile. I love it. Love that tune. Um, so we are now on to my number one, my top choice, my favourite saxophone-based pop rock tune that has ever lived. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is that choice? That choice is the 1988 greatest year in the history of the world, actually. Um, uh, it is the 1988 uh, song Never Tear Us Apart by the Australian pop rock band In Excess. This is a, an inspired choice. It's my, it, And it has long, for many years, been my favourite saxophone solo in any song. And I've said it for many years as well. I... I adore this song. I, I love In Excess. I think they're a brilliant band. I think uh, Michael Hutchins was a was a real poet. I think they are a group of yeah. consummate musicians. Um, I think they were doing really interesting stuff, really stuff ahead of their time for, for the sort of late 80s. Um, and um, yeah, this, this song in particular, I think is one of the strongest uh, songs they ever kind of came out with. Um, it was uh, written, it, it is written rather as a uh, Viennese waltz, which is an odd choice for, a, yeah. for an 80s pop rock ballad. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's what gives it a real kind of distinctive sound and style to it. Um, it's very clever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, uh, yeah, um, the saxophone is done by uh, the saxophonist of the band, which actually I would also say I think In Excess is probably the best kind of pop rock band with a permanent saxophonist ever in history. Because uh, there very, aren't that many. That's a very good point. But, yeah. it, but In Excess are one and, and famous for having uh, a saxophonist who's the, yeah, great Kirk Pengilly, um, who has also always been the publicity spokesman and the band archivist as well. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. I'm an archivist yeah. and also PR spokesman. And <laughs> and I also play sax in the band as well. <laughs> Don't you had one that was better than the That FC, is brilliant. Yeah. That is much yeah. better. Archivist is my yeah, <laughs> favourite Um <sighs> Yeah, so it's it's uh not actually a particularly long solo. Um actually it's only about fifteen seconds. Uh but it's just beautiful. Um there was a uh, a quote from someone, I can't remember who said it now, that said um it's it's uh, uh, when I when I hear the saxophone solo, my walls start to melt, and oh, it is that wow. sound that he has is incredibly evocative, moving kind of sound. This was actually the song that was played uh, as they walked Michael Hutchins' coffin oh, out uh, after yeah. his funeral and things like that. Cause it is it's just a, a kind of haunting, beautiful, uh, really moving song. Um, it's commonly known as uh, uh, actually the, um, talking about Baker Street, apparently. This is commonly known as the first saxophone solo you learn as a rock saxophonist. Oh, really? Um, yeah, apparently, because it's, it's relatively simple, but also quite an iconic kind of thing. And there's a lot of different kind of techniques in a short space of time. That, so learn that solo and you'll cover a lot. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's, that's a lovely legacy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, yeah, just some... Re- I think one of the things that really makes it stand out for me is that the uh, there's this silence. And, it, and actually, it happens several times in the song but the last time it happens it is to lead into the saxophone solo at where all the music everything just cuts out and apparently when they play live um it's never decided how long that silence is going to last for and it's always wow. it's always led by um i can't remember his name guitarist one of the two brothers uh faris 
uh, I can't remember which Farris it is, uh, Tim Farris, I think, who um, kind of leads it on Aww. the guitar, but it's his choice. When it, so they're all just waiting for him. Well, when's he going to come back in? When's he going to come back in? Apparently, yeah, I think like i think i read somewhere it was like something ridiculous like a minute has been the longest they've ever done it for just wow the audience wait and wait and wait <laughs> um uh, but and that's yeah when, when it happens and then kurt comes in with the with the sax solo as well just makes it even more powerful because you've just made everyone wait for so long and you just get this kind of yeah screech coming through this kind of wailing sound um yeah that yeah i just think is, is incredibly evocative and, and really I think raises a great song to a kind of really high level, and yeah, I just think it's a it's a bit of a masterpiece of a song. I I think I didn't really know who NXS were until Michael Hutchins' death. Went oh gosh, yeah, they, they were they're a huge band, yeah. and then I listened to them and went oh no, I do know loads of their songs. Yeah, and then kind bands, of yeah. discovered a bit more, and I would like to do that again actually. Yeah. Um, Michael Hutchins, that's a sad, relatively young death as well, really, yeah. isn't it? Um, yeah. And uh, and and an incredible voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, they were they were they were a style all of their own, and they they still are a style all of their own. You know, you couldn't really pigeonhole them because it was kind of eighties kind of soft rock guitars, but then you had this sort of saxophone in there as well. But then you had Michael Hutchins' voice, which was very clean and more like a pop star's voice than a rock yeah. singer's voice. And so it was they're really hard to define as a band and their sound is really hard to define as a band i think and that's again i think that's why they they stand out as such a such an excellent excellent band but um yeah fantastic let's have a little listen to never tear us apart by inks <laughs> very nice the blue danube of 1980s rock um now oh i I, um meant to say also the song i couldn't remember it wasn't how the song was half a heart and the saxophonist is steve marcus he was the one who uh wrote a track with a very and it is i've listened to it very similar line to baker street um but i'm sure it it is a, a subliminal thing but again the plot thickens on who the hell came up with that riff yeah but it is uh fantastic um, okay, well, I'm on to my last choice, um, and I'm a bit nervous about what the backlash will be for this one, because there are lots of different tracks I could have mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people will say, oh, if you're going to go down this avenue, you should have picked that one, you should have picked that one. Um, I think I could have picked, um, yeah, I could have picked a load of them, but I've gone with just the one that makes me really happy, which is Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen from 1975 from the same uh, Born to Run titled album uh, played by the person we've already uh, kind of acknowledged as one of the greatest, if not the greatest rock sax players of all time Clarence Clement Absolutely Um, Clarence Clements uh, I think sounds like one of the nicest guys in the world Yeah yeah, um, yeah, and hearing what you said about yeah, you know yeah, Edge of Glory and I think he genuinely lovely dude. Yeah, um, and apparently the reason why he moved to Florida mm. was because not only is he really into motorsport, apparently have a lot of it there, but also he thought he could do good there. And apparently he spent like the majority of uh, the last like twenty years of his life just working with young people and making like 
putting loads of back into the community yeah which i didn't know about either no i didn't know it was really lovely um now born to run is what number 21 on rolling stone's greatest songs of all time um and i and i think it is a perfect song yeah i think born to run as an album is phenomenal it's eight tracks that's all it is yeah and they're all brilliant um I mean, they go on a little bit. Um, but I love the story of this as well. You, you've got Bruce writing this kind of amazing ballad about <laughs> this guy who rides a hot rod. We don't know because it's in first person. Um, being in love with someone called Wendy um, and saying that I, he, you know, I've got all this passionate love for you, but I also don't have the patience to make it work. And therefore, mm-hmm. my excuses are I'm part of a breed of people who are born to run. And and I, I don't know why that song about kind of I love you but I can't be bothered so bye and also Careless Whisper which is I love you but I cheated on you bye why are they so popular with those singers are so popular with like it's amazing that they're they're so human I suppose is the reason yeah and fallible um and also I think what Bruce is also known for is this incredible way of interweaving and world building in songs yeah by he mentions Highway Nine and and there are kind of lots of New Jersey references in there, which yeah. are, um and and speaks to a working class kind of community of working men as well, which pop and rock just never did. Yeah. Um, this song's also credited for having a kind of Wall of Sound esque um thing going on. It's kind of got a heavy Phil Spector influence. One critic can't remember who described it as um Be My Baby, but by Bruce. <laughs> Because, and, yeah, and I yeah, thought, yeah. why are you making that comparison? And then you listen to, and it is, it's the wall of sound. Yeah. It's the fact that this had such huge orchestrations. Yeah. Um, the reason why I'm going on about this is because I can't believe the way the song was written. When I imagine Bruce Springsteen writing a song, mm-hmm. and I've been writing some lyrics, you know, picking out a tune on a guitar, yeah. and it growing into this huge epic thing, and getting in musicians, and then mm-hmm. it, that's how it built up. Well, apparently this was the opposite. So about a year before Born to Run, the album was released, they recorded this with zero lyrics. Okay. Absolutely. It was not a lyrically driven song. Oh, wow. Apparently he wrote the riff on guitar um, and then wrote the rest of the song uh, whilst performing on on the road um, on on a piano, which is why it's in E major. Yeah which he kind of uses quite a lot. And and you can feel like, you know, for those pianists among you as well, you can get your hands around E major fairly quickly. And you've, you know, you've got some of the black notes in there to kind of really bring out some of that clang on an, on an old fashioned piano. I, I kind of get that, it's driving. And it's also quite easy to play. Um, but again, not necessarily that easy if you're a saxophonist, which is what we're going to get to. Um, there's a wonderful story, Clarence, uh, Clarence, tells about meeting Bruce Springsteen and he explains that he was playing with um, Joyful Noise in uh, oh, yeah. New Jersey. He's originally from Virginia right. um, but was in the New Jersey scene and he'd heard Bruce Springsteen apparently used to put on these great performances in bars. So he goes over to one of the bars one night um, and he walks in and he says he, he opens the door and the whole band are opposite the doorway all staring at him. He says it was a rainy windy night it was and when I opened the door, the whole thing flew off its hinges and blew away down the street. Because <laughs> the door literally blew off. That's that's how Clarence Clements made his intro, intro, entrance. Amazing. The band were on stage staring at me framed in the doorway. And maybe that did make Bruce a little nervous. Because I just said, I want to play with your band. And he said, 
Sure. Do anything you want. The first song we did was an early version of Spirit in the Night. Bruce and I looked at each other and didn't say anything. We just knew. We knew we were the missing links in each other's lives. He was what I'd been searching for. In one way, he was just a scrawny little kid, but he was a visionary. He wanted to follow his dream. So from then on, I was a part of history. Wow. Isn't that an amazing thing to say about a connection? Um, Yeah, I loved that. I thought that was really, really lovely. And it gives you an idea of the kind of player he was. He was known as the big man or the biggest man. Or you'll never find a bigger man. Um, I think uh, Eddie Vedder actually changed uh, you'll never find a a better man to bigger man uh, in honour of Clarence Clemens (laughs) passing. Um, And again, if you look up this dude, he played with everyone. But primarily known as a saxophonist for the street band, as you said uh, earlier. Um, So one of the things I like about this particular Clarence Clements is it sounds like so much fun. Yeah. Now, a lot of E Street sax solos sound fun and they have joy in them, but also sometimes they've got sadness and that longing and, you know, you can play in any style if you want. But this is, for me, such a fun bit of sax that comes in in, in what is essentially quite a driving guitar yeah, song, yeah. you know, and driving piano. Um, I think my favourite song off Born to Run is Thunder Road and yeah. that's also got some wonderful sax on it. Um, but there's just something so fun and joyous about this there's nothing kind of pretentious about it and when it comes in it makes me dare i say it someone who hates dancing it kind of makes me want to move yeah and there are very few songs that do that for me um so i i just think that's a it's a beautiful song it's one of the greatest songs ever written it's joyous it speaks to everyone in the world can relate to it and it's a great example of the kind of energy and joy that, and, and influence that clarence clements had on not just the music of bruce springsteen but everyone he played with yeah um I, I don't really know if I have anything more to say than than that on this one, other wow. than I think we should have a little listen and then uh, do some honourable mentions. Absolutely. Let's have a little listen to Bruce C. Born to Run, 1975, featuring the wonderful Clarence Clements. <laughs> There we go. There we go. There we go. That is our top 10, ladies and gents, and everyone else. Mm. It is, uh, yeah, it's difficult to do the um, honourable mentions with this one because it's not like you've got a huge wealth as we normally do uh, to kind of choose from. But I think, yeah, a couple that maybe that stood out to me were... um, I mean, I'm a I'm a huge uh, Billy Joel fan, so I have to yeah. mention that Billy Joel often uses great sax work in his songs. Uh, scenes from Italian Restaurant springs to mind as being a particularly mm-hmm. great one. Um, and, New York uh, State of Mind has got New York sax State of Mind, um, Just the Way You Are, uh, Vienna. I mean, there's yeah, loads of his songs have got lovely sax. Um, solos kind of in them or, or sax all the way through um when you said that i was imagining billy joel singing um ultravox's vienna maybe that's maybe billy joel and ultravox can do a mashup of their viennas on the same album that nelly Furtado. we uh, make it a, we make it a thing yeah I and everyone does a mashup thing. wouldn't that be great everyone does yeah 
I think we can make it a thing. Yeah, we can do that. Oh, Vienna. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think um, uh, another few I was just going to kind of name check. Uh, uh, Sade. Um, oh, smooth, uh, smooth operator. operator. Definitely. Is Definitely. A great, uh, great sax solo in that. Um, and uh, another Billy, actually, Billy Ocean. Uh, Caribbean Queen by Billy Ocean oh, yeah. has got a brilliant sax line in it as well. Um, yeah. And then yeah, and then yeah, just other like um, uh, I was tempted by which I love the song more than anything else. If you leave by Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, LMD was a big hit in the eighties, uh-huh. but it's 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 a very synthesized saxophone. So much so it barely sounds like a saxophone anymore. So it's like, it doesn't really work. Um, yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, um, and. Yeah, there's a very big one, but I assume uh, you might mention it in your honourable mentions as well. Well, uh, uh, yeah, we there's there's kind of we've we've covered all the big ones, and I think there is one song that is probably glaring uh, in its omission. So I'll see if you are going to mention it in your honourables. Maybe I don't I don't know because I've got I've kind of just mentioned some bands and genres that we couldn't really talk about, mm. and you've already gone there as well. So Madness and yeah. One Step Beyond, obviously, Madness in general, the specials, obviously. Yeah. Um, a huge amount of James Brown uh, with some incredible sax work but yeah. again it's never truly featured but again you look at some of that live stuff it comes out so yeah. it is incredible some great Stevie Wonder stuff as well um, uh, although he kind of favoured his mouth organ for tracks like Isn't She Lovely and stuff where sax would normally go um, there's still some loads of loads of lovely sax parts and brass parts in general right? yeah. one of the best, best brass arrangers ever yeah absolutely uh, Kenny G we mentioned early on Kenny G yeah um one that I think uh, is, is a contentious one was the epic sax guy from Eurovision entry. <laughs> I was doing some googling and that came up, and I went, "Do you know what? Yeah, I mean, it did bring some attention to saxophone, right?" Yeah. Um, but the one that I also nearly actually put in is Rio by Duran Duran. There which we I, go. Is that the one you were going to talk of about? Course. Ah, okay. It's, oh, it's the are. only famous sax-based song that I think we've not mentioned. Yeah, it's it. it's it's a big sax number, and yeah. and you can imagine the sax being played on the yacht and the yeah, video and yeah. all of that. Um, and again, a much better song than people give it credit for because Duran Duran. I know you love them, but they, you know, I understand why they pe- they annoy people because they are so eighties and cheesy yeah. and full of energy. But some fantastic lyrics and some great yeah. song concepts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and great hooks. Yeah, uh, um, ordinary world is a, is a. Beautiful, beautiful, song. beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, well, there we are. I think that's we've it. come to I the end of our saxophone lot. road. We've come to the end of saxophone road. What would you do mm-hmm. if, at the beginning, it was invented by a sax Coburg, saxa Coburg, and, and you found it, and it was all... a royal instrument, and wow. it had been hidden because of the royal family's connection to Germany? That um, would have been a better story than it would have been. Than, but it, but then Adolf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe there is. Mm. Anyways, that was um, a side. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, side note. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's truth in there. Let us know, everyone. Yeah. Go and do your own digging. Yep. See what you can find. Are the royal family hiding the fact that someone in the royal family invented the saxophone? Is Adolphe for political reasons. Sax the true king of England? I think that's the thing. He probably would be if you trace it back. There we go. Well, we stumbled on that. And that's why Bill Clinton played the saxophone when he came over to visit Tony Blair at number 10. There you go. It was in order to uh, ingratiate, himself ingratiate himself with yeah. the British leadership. Yeah. Makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, he was quite a famous sax player. 
Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't put any Bill Clinton numbers in my top five. Lately. No, you didn't. No. They both, uh, both Clarence Clements and Bill Clinton played saxophone and had their voice featured on The Simpsons. That's true. So there's connection true. there as well. Yeah, I didn't put any uh, Bleeding Gums Murphy. Um, oh. Or Lisa Simpson, in fact. To be honest, Lisa's a great sax player. Yeah. I think, by and large, Lisa's output is way and above That's Bleeding Gums Murphy. Actually, do you know what? Honourable mention is... The sax solo in the theme tune of The Simpsons that's different every episode. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's a very good honourable mention. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, just I think that soprano sax that Kenny G gave us for so long. Yeah. Is is it makes my ears bleed because of how cheesy it is, but it is it yeah. is brilliant stuff. Absolutely. Um, and and also I'd say a lot of um late 90s early noughties hip hop utilised a lot of sax sampling as well yeah. actually like, a, like quite a few on 2001 you've got sax in there um, quite a lot of yeah like Nate Dogg and, and other people kind of from that, that time period used um, quite a bit of sax in kind of sampling interpolating within hip hop so yeah, very good point as well yeah right then I think we should probably um, I think go and should... celebrate uh, England winning the football. Absolutely, England. Uh, for those of you who are listening, uh, not at the moment, uh, England just won the first uh, game of the Euro 2021 Championships. Yep. Uh, uh, against Croatia. 2021 Championships. Yep. It's the Euros, isn't it? No. You didn't know what it was. No. It's the, the football European competition. 2021, even though it's called Euro 2020, because they've decided that they can't have it. So they're going to do another one? They, I think it's just so that it... No, well, no, because it wouldn't... Because it's every four years, isn't it? So I think they've they've decided so they can call it 2020. So and then they, they have to do it in three years' time rather than four years' time. Yeah. So they're going to do another one as they yeah. normally would rather than... Yeah, rather yeah. than it has a knock-on effect. I yeah. guess. But, I mean, you could still probably call it 2021. No. No. Okay, on that note, uh, if you have any thoughts about what the Euros should be called this year, or maybe something about saxophones, you can get in touch with us on any of the usual ways. You can find us on Twitter at Macabre Podcaster. You can find us on Facebook, fb.me forward slash podcaster macabre. You can drop us an email, podcastermacabre at gmail.com. And you can, of course, like, share, subscribe, and listen to this podcast, uh, the Jonathan Creek podcast, all our previous work on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Anchor, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. In the meantime, I have been Callum Hughes. I have been David Shopland. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Suck.